Epistle of Peter, chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 8. We're taking up these particular epistles who are written by the apostles of the circumcision, and that would include James, Peter, John, and Jude. And I don't think we're going to go into Revelation since we've had that a few years ago, not too long ago. But I thought it was necessary in order to show how the word is to be rightly divided that we should see what God has in store for us through these writers of the circumcision apostles. The twelve that were selected, or rather eleven plus Matthias, who is chosen later on in the book of Acts. And these twelve were given the what is commonly called the Great Commission. And we find that with that commission they went to the Jews and preach the gospel of the kingdom to them. We thank God, however, that the Apostle Paul was raised up just a little later on, about ten years later after Pentecost, in the tenth chapter, or the ninth chapter, rather, of the book of Acts. We find that he was saved and he was commissioned to go to the Gentiles, and his message was different than the one that Peter and the eleven had, for the simple reason that he is the only one who said, uh, who referred to it as my gospel. Peter never used that expression, neither did any of the eleven use it. But the Apostle Paul, because he received his gospel from the risen Christ after his ascension and glorification, we find that he could call it my gospel. And this he said on several occasions. And so we find that we have a gospel given to us today, which is a bit different than what you get at Pentecost. Because the Pentecostal gospel was the gospel of the kingdom, an offer of an amnesty to the people of Israel and only addressed to Jews until Cornelius was saved in chapter 10 of the book of Acts. But fortunately, he didn't have to be baptized before he got saved. He was saved before he was baptized, which was a different order entirely than the previous nine chapters. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and at verse 8. We left off with verse 7 and now we have some uh, exhortations given to families how to get along with each other. And these particular injunctions, of course, are given to the people of Israel. This is not a church letter. Remember that, please, as you look into this letter. It says in verse 8, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful. Pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life, now I want you to notice that when he talks about the life that they are to love and they are to enjoy and to be blessed with, comes from the prophetic word. And this is prophecy now that you're reading here for two, three verses. For he that will love life and receive uh, good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. That's the end of the Old Testament prophetic quotation. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? That and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye, and be, and here is a quote from the Old Testament, be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. End of quote. 
And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or conduct in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Before we get into these verses concerning the sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary for sins, we would like to say something about the ten verses between verse 8 and verse, uh, 27, uh, verse uh, 8 and 17. Pardon me. We find here that there are some injunctions that we have to remember. The addressee of this particular book, it is not written to the church, the body of Christ. This has nothing to do with Paul's injunctions to the church, which consists of members of the body of Christ. We find that this is written before the Lord had turned his back, before God had turned his back upon the nation of Israel. In Acts chapter 28, God is still, still dealing with that nation. And we find that the nation, some of them, most of them, according to Abba Iban, who is a historian for the people of Israel, the state of Israel, and he had some excellent programs on television recently. I wish you all had the opportunity to have listened to those over Channel 21. And since he is a historian, he can be counted on to tell us the truth about uh, the strangers that were dwelling in foreign countries in Gentile territories, countries that the Jewish people had adopted because of the heel of the Roman Empire under which the people of Israel found themselves for uh, several decades. And we know that they, the Jewish people had escaped the Romans by going into these Gentile territories I think there are 15 or 16 countries mentioned in the first chapter or the second chapter of the book of Acts. And these people came at the time of Pentecost, these Jewish people who were scattered in these countries that they had adopted for a short period of time, supposedly, but some of them had been there so long that they bare children. And we find that uh, they had adopted the languages of these adopted countries, and therefore they were literally what the Apostle Peter calls them, strangers and pilgrims. And as strangers, we find that these Jews had the opportunity to listen to Peter at Pentecost, and some of them had accepted Christ as the king that was offered to them. Have you ever noticed in Acts chapter 2 where when the Apostle Peter talks about the resurrection of Christ from the dead, he doesn't say, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4, that it was for our justification, but he says it was in order that he might be 
a king on the throne. He was raised to sit on the throne of David because that message is directed to Israel and not to the body of Christ. Remember, this is not a church epistle, neither is James. Be very careful how you read the book of James. You'll not get very much help from most of your expositors today because they like to lose sight of the adjective that is in the first chapter in the first or second verses of each one of these books. And when you lose sight of the addressee, you're getting confused. It's like going to the post office and you're asking for this neighbor's mail and that neighbor's mail and you have a right to, they ask you to pick up their mail. And you've got four or five different letters in your hands and you think, well, since they asked me to uh, pick up the letters, I don't see why it's harmful for me to see what's in these letters. And so one opens it for Mrs. Jones, and another one opens it for Mr. Smith, and another one opens it for Mr. Beaumont. And what do you find? A lot of confusion. He doesn't feel at home in these particular letters because he doesn't know the atmosphere. He doesn't know the circumstances that surrounds the particular letters and the addressee of these letters. And for this reason, only one family within each one of these envelopes could enjoy the contents of that letter. Now, God expects that you should enjoy the contents of the Pauline epistles because he is the one who is qualified because he has received from the risen glorified Christ in heaven the mystery, the explanation of the dispensation of grace. And according to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, that dispensation has been given to Paul and through the apostle Paul to us. So we find we are at home in Paul's epistles. And so we have to be very careful how we take the four Gospels, how we take the book of Acts, and how we take James, Peter, John, and Jude, and Revelation. Because the addressee is vastly different for those particular books. So in chapter 1 and verse 1 of 1 Peter, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now that's a good verse to memorize. You may not like those names, but it will help you to realize the importance of knowing the people to whom a certain letter is addressed. It's addressed to strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I didn't memorize all the 15 countries of, Genesis, of uh, Acts chapter 2, but if you want to know just the, the different sections of these particular countries, then you can find them in that particular portion of Scripture. And now I find that Paul, Peter, has an, has an apostleship, and that apostleship was never changed. It's for the circumcision. It's to the circumcision. It's only to the people of Israel. It is not to the Gentile world at all. And we find that's one reason why he is removed slowly from the scene. James takes Peter's place uh, after the conversion of Cornelius. And then slowly on we find they have less power and less power until you get to Acts chapter 28 where the Apostle Paul has presented the risen Christ to the Jews that were there at Rome and they rejected it. So the Jews at Jerusalem, which is one center, and the Jews at the capital, Rome, is another center. And we find that the Jews, the, uh, those responsible individuals, the elders and so on, 
They rejected the message of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. They turned their back upon it. And in so doing, they turned their back upon the prospect of ever having the millennial reign brought in by the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ to the throne of David, which never took place at that time and will not take place until the future after the church has run its course. The times of tribulation will come in. The Lord Jesus Christ will come with great power and glory a second time to the earth, which does not take place in the rapture. For the rapture is the coming of Christ in the air to catch away the body of Christ that we might be with him and like him for all eternity. So here we have to remember the people who are reading this particular letter. So starting with that, we might say that uh, uh, the believers were a minority and they suffered greatly. And suffering is one of the chief words in the Apostle Peter's letter. That they did not suffer as a lot of people will tell you at the hands of Gentiles because Gentiles didn't like their presence in Gentile territory. That's what you would be told. But that's not the case. I can take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14 and there it will tell you that the Jews suffered at the hands of their own countrymen. No one hated a believer among Israel like those who did not believe. Those who believed were a minority group. The scripture says 5,000 at one time, 3,000 and another. What are they as opposed to the millions of Israelites? And so we find that the majority dealt very harshly, according to James chapter 5, with the minority. And they suffered at the hands of the majority, and they were all Jews. But only those who had accepted Christ as risen from the dead were saved by the grace of God and born again by the word that came from the Apostle Peter. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, it says this, For this cause also thank God, we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, he says to these Thessalonians, even as they have of the Jews. And no one could torment a Jew like another Jew who had no room in his heart for Christ. And you've got to get the picture in order to understand what he's talking about. Therefore, in the first part of verse 15, it says in 1 Thessalonians 2, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. So you see, it was no picnic for a Jew to accept Christ. It is not today as far as that's concerned. I understand that when a Jew accepts Christ, he's the only member of the family that has acknowledged his sinnership and his need of a Savior. The Jewish family, along with the Jewish community, will have a funeral service held for that person because that person has, as it were, died to the Jewish community and to the Jewish family. Now here we have something about suffering in this chapter. We find that uh, they were not to retaliate. That is, the Jewish believers were not to retaliate. They were not to render kind for kind, in other words. But they were to give the hidden man of the heart a chance to show itself. And the hidden man of the heart was the new creature in Christ that they had become when they were born again. 
that word born again or that phrase rather uh, is often applied as though it's only the experience of members of the body of Christ and we forget John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 where it says there that uh, uh, he came unto his own and his own received him not but as many as received him to them gave he the power to become the sons of the children of God it shouldn't be sons but children of God and we find that people were born again there and then in John chapter 3 well I should say verse 13 or 14 says which were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God and so the new birth was experienced in the day of our Lord Jesus prior to his death on the cross by Jews who believed the simple message of Christ and his kingdom and so we find the same thing in John chapter 3 and verse 5. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's not just for Gentiles, for members of the body of Christ, for those who listen to Paul's gospel, but it was equally true of those who would believe the message that was given by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the twelve that followed him. If they are to suffer, let it be for righteousness' sake. According to verse 14, look at that verse 14. It says, but and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And they are not only to suffer for righteousness' sake, but for doing good rather than for doing evil, according to verse 18. Uh, verse uh, 17, it says, for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Now, another thing in this portion of Scripture, and that is that these believers who are a minority group living among fellow Jews who would torment them and bring a lot of suffering to bear, bear upon them, we find that they are to give place in their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is verse 15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, or make a place, make room for Him, set Him apart, in your hearts and then of course you'll be able to take all the suffering in the spirit in which you are supposed to take it as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ now I know that there are things that we can take and appropriate to ourselves as members of the body there are like conditions in many cases between that of a believer in the nation of Israel and that in a believer in the body of Christ and therefore we can apply a good deal of these things, but we have to have the interpretation. We don't have enough interpretation of the word in the church today. The people of Israel have been forgotten. We want to rob them of all the blessings and just give them all the curses that are in the word of God. And it seems as though we have been cursed with the spirit of anti-Semitism because we hate even to acknowledge that the address of these addressee of these particular epistles are Jews and not Gentiles. It's amazing to see how this spirit of anti-Semitism can creep up in the hearts of even those who profess to be fundamental. We might say that the secret of bearing under the load of suffering was the knowledge that it was in all probability the will of God. Look at verse 17. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing well, of course, we, don't, uh, we, we can see where the will of God would be involved in suffering for evildoing. But imagine uh, believing that it's God's will that we should suffer for uh, well-doing. We don't know what God's purpose is always about. We do know that he always has our good before him and his glory. 
And he has other people in mind, people with whom you and I come into daily contact. And maybe he would like to show them how you can take suffering because you are already in one who has suffered the just for us, the unjust that he might bring us to God. Now we have a wonderful example brought before us in verse 18. It says, For Christ also hath one suffered for sins. Now here we have brought before us the Lord Jesus Christ as a trespass offering. I brought out the fact last week that there are sin offerings and there are trespass offerings. The sin offering is in the book of Leviticus and also the trespass offering is there beside the peace offering and the burnt offering. And all of these particular bloody sacrifices give us four particular aspects of Christ's one death on the cross of Calvary. I mentioned last week there when it says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin singular of the world. We find there that he is giving God an answer for the fact that you and I come into the world with a sin nature that can only sin and displease God. For because of the having that sin nature, we find that God's word is true concerning each one of us when he says, There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. It's because we possess a sinful nature which we have derived from our parents and our parents have derived it all the way back from sinful Adam. Now the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross. He gave God an answer for that sin question. That is, yes, the sin question. And we find that because we all come into the world possessing it, he disposed of that question by going to the cross as the Lamb of God to bear away the sin of the world. And then as a trespass offering, we find that he answers for those substitutionally, for those who accept Christ as Savior for their particular sins, the fruit of that root called sin. The root is taken care of by the death of Christ on the cross. Now we find the trespasses, the iniquities, and so on, are also taken care of in behalf of those who are in Christ. Only those who are in Christ can say today in the language of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. Christ is our trespass offering. God laid upon him the multitude of our sins past, present, and future. And the Lord Jesus Christ there died the just for us, the unjust that he might bring us to God. Of course, the people there addressed are the Hebrews. And you must remember that Christ first died in behalf of that special Jewish nation. And we find that God did not have a word to say to Gentiles until, or the Lord Jesus rather, had nothing to say to the Gentiles until Christ went to the cross and there he died. And then Israel got the first opportunity of an offer of an amnesty and when that was rejected, God raised up the Apostle Paul, gave him the knowledge of the mystery or the revelation of the mystery of this dispensation of grace. And then the message of God's grace came out to those of us who are today Gentiles. And when he became the trespass offering on the cross, it was the just dying for us, the unjust. Now in the great trespass offering, and if you want to read about that, Take the book of Leviticus chapter 5 and up to verse 7 of chapter 6. And there you'll find some very interesting facts about the trespass offering. 
we find that there are two words or two expressions in that uh, trespass offering that ought to be noted. We might say that, first of all, six times we have the word guilty expressed in that uh, trespass offering. I want you to remember that in connection with the answer of a good conscience toward God that we have in verse 21. We find that these people had to be made guilty of that particular offense wherein they had offended their fellow man and also offended God. And then we find also the word confess. And we find that it tells us in the fifth chapter of the book of Leviticus, these words, he shall confess that he hath sinned in that thing. Now there is one particular sin that the people of Israel were guilty of above all other sins that they could ever sin as individuals or as a nation. And that particular sin was the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his son into the world not to start a church. He sent his son into the world to be king of Israel, to be the son of David raised to sit upon David's throne in order to bring in the glorious millennial reign to the people of Israel. It was a kingdom objective. And when a sign was put over the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is Jesus, king of the Jews, then there were people who didn't like that particular sign. The Jews didn't like it. But we must remember the question that Pilate had asked Jesus, and that is, Art thou a king? And he said, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. He claimed to be a king. He is not the church's king. He's the church's body. He is the church's, uh, rather, the church's head. We are his body, and he is the head. He is not our king. He will never be our king as such. I know Christmas is coming and you're going to sing a lot of Christmas anthems. Be very careful. Watch them sometime. You can sing them. That's all right to be one of the crowd. That's fine. But there's a lot of sentiment in hymns that we don't find substantiated by the doctrines of Scripture. I find in this hymn book or any hymn book that you can ever publish by man, which is never the product of divine inspiration in the sense in which the Word of God is, you can have conflicting doctrines in hymn books and we sing them regardless. Because we'd be kind of queer if we had to change every song to our liking, wouldn't it? But you know what I mean. The Bible is the only book that you can depend upon as being given of God, inspired by God, and profitable for us. Now we find that in the great uh, uh, trespass offering, the word guilty is there, and uh, the uh, sin wherein they had sinned had to be confessed. And who is he that can bring Israel back to God? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the trespass offering. We must remember that. But what did Israel do about Christ when they had an opportunity to make a choice? They said, crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. But Christ not only died, but was also raised from the dead. And that was a surprise to Israel. Most of Israelites did not accept the resurrection of Christ. You will only find only a handful, as it were, in comparison with the millions of the people of Israel. Now, before the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ had a body that was not, that didn't have to die or subject to death, but it was capable of dying. It was a body of flesh and bones and blood. And if the Lord Jesus Christ so chose to be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, he would give up that body as a sacrifice for sin. But once Christ is raised from the dead, we find that that body is no longer subject even to a willingness on his part to 
die and he will never have that desire I know that that the scripture teaches us in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 7 that as far as his present body is concerned he lives in the power of an endless life and we can thank God for that because it takes the endless life of a savior to intercede endlessly for us and make sure that those of us who have trusted Christ as savior will be saved not only for time but for all eternity now in verse 19 it says by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison now the spirits referred to in verse 18 and 19 is the Holy Spirit I should have put said that in the plural the spirit referred to in verses 18 and 19 is the Holy Spirit in both instances in the power of that Holy Spirit through Noah the Lord Jesus Christ preached good news to people who are now confined in prison, hopelessly lost beyond the reach of any message of salvation. Now I hope you can get that. That's what it means there. It says, which sometime were disobedient, verse 20. They disobeyed the gospel given to them through Noah. And it was Christ preaching through that to them through Noah in the power of the Holy Spirit and they rejected the opportunity of being saved by way of the ark going through the floodwaters and we find that today they are still in prison because hell is nothing else but a prison house of spirits who have turned their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ in one way shape or form regardless of when the gospel was preached all the way back at the time of the fall we find Christ is the center of the message in every case and every dispensation only has Christ offered to them. Christ in one way, shape, or form, not in always in the same way. But if there's going to be forgiveness offered to fallen mankind, it's got to come through Christ. He is the one that said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now in verse 20, it says, which sometimes were disobedient. We find that in that baptism of water, they passed. They, I mean, eight souls, the family of Noah. In that baptism of water, they passed onto a new earth, as it were, saved for a new beginning. It was the ark that bore safely, bore them safely through the flood. That the eight were identified with the ark in that they stepped into the ark at God's invitation. Come thou and all thy house into the ark. And then it says, and God shut the door. And I thank God that it's God that shuts the door because he represents the safety of those who have entered into the ark. God shut the door. A lot of people have an idea they can shut the door themselves and open it anytime they want to and run back to a revival meeting and open the door again and get out of it when the world shows its allurements. And that's not true at all. It's God that shuts the door. And the door cannot be shut until the ark is safely on Mount Ararat. And that's Mount Ararat typifies the glorious resurrection of Christ from the dead and the place into which he has entered higher than all heavens. And that's where he is for us. And according to the sixth verse of Ephesians chapter 2, we have been raised together with Christ, that is, those of us who are believers, and have been seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. And if you had spiritual eyesight today, and you believed Ephesians 2, 6, you would say, while it is true, I am in the body in a church building in Kazemels, Missouri, 
But as far as my spiritual position is concerned, I am in Christ. I've already been raised and there is no doubt about my coming into my eternal glory and into the fullness of redemption because I am in Him and He is already up there. Now that's the truth of God's Word. So we find that was uh, they had passed through the waters of baptism. Now the Bible mentions water here. It says in verse 20 that his eight souls were saved by water. Then notice verse 21, the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've got two books here, I'm not going to read from them, but I could tell you how other people think about this particular verse. This is not a simple verse to read. I took the liberty of paraphrasing this verse in order that you might know what is, what is intended by it. And my paraphrase would be this. Peter is saying, after he says what he does in verse 20, now he says the flood baptism reminds us of another water baptism, the one required of us Jews without which you could not be saved. Now when it tells you in this verse, and remember, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, the address C of this particular letter, it says the like figure whereunto even baptism also doth now save us. Is that the us of the body of Christ? No, it is not. Baptism cannot do a single solitary thing for you. No matter in how many churches you have been baptized, no matter by how many men you have been baptized, you cannot get baptism, baptismal redemption. There is no such thing today. I say today because there was a time and you will find expositors and I've got two of them here that will work hard to show that these men are trying to teach you that they are not suggesting baptismal regeneration and yet that's what it's all about. Is there a time in history when there has been such a thing as baptismal regeneration? I want you to think now of the word guilty. And I want you to think of the reason for baptism uh, by a lot of people, as given by a lot of people. The answer of a good conscience toward God. It's the answer of Israel's conscience. The answer of the Jews' conscience, whose conscience has so recently been, been pricked by the Apostle Peter at Pentecost. Let us go back to Acts chapter 1, please, and I'll show you just what pricked their conscience. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Always remember thou, for ten long years, in ten chapters, the Apostle Peter had nothing to say to a Gentile as such. Remember that. His message was only to the Jews. And remember the instructions the Lord Jesus gave at the time of their appointment in Matthew chapter 10. He says, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, nor into the cities of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what this message is all about. That's not our message through Paul. It's not the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but it's the message that the apostle Peter and all the rest of the apostles, plus the Lord Jesus Christ, plus John the Baptist, were preaching to one nation, and that nation was Israel. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves also know. 
him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and what's the rest of it? And by wicked hands have crucified and slain. That charge is never given to a Gentile. The Apostle Paul never uses that language in order to bring us to saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not the guilty ones in the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary, only where our sins come into view. But we find out here, he says to the Jews, and remember that, this is a Pentecostal message, and a Pentecostal message is not for the church, it is for the nation of Israel, who have by their wicked hands have taken Christ and publicly crucified him, uh, publicly crucified him, thereby uh, giving strength to the words, we will not have him to reign over us. Now I want you to look at verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 at verse 37. Here's where the guilt comes in. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now whatever answer he has is given by divine inspiration to the apostle Peter. Paul wasn't the only one to be inspired. Peter was inspired. And whatever these instructions are, are God's instructions. And if it's the word of God, if they heed these instructions, they can be born again. And that's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. But here he says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, in verse 38, the answer is this. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That is the message of Pentecost. That's not the message of grace. It has nothing to do with the dispensation of grace. It has nothing to do with Paul. Paul still, as an enemy of Christ, has to go on his Damascus road and be arrested by a vision of the risen Christ at the Father's right hand and stopped by the words, Paul, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And what is the answer we find that Peter gives long before Paul is even saved? It says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now baptism was practiced by the people of Israel as a washing. Remember that. It was a washing. It was to wash away the guilt that God would bring upon their souls because of the most dastardly deed done in this whole world by the crucifixion of Christ by these very Jews who with filthy hands took the Lord Jesus and put him on a cross. Baptism is water here. That's water baptism. Not for you and for me. This is for Israel. Don't forget the addressee. And these people were told, repent to be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And you will receive the remission of sins. Now may I say this? Can't I get out of this particular expression the truth that without that uh, remission of sins depended entirely upon two things, repentance and baptism? Without baptism they couldn't even be saved. This is not Christian baptism. This is the washing that the Apostle Paul talks about if he is the writer of Hebrews. I should say that we read of in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Because there the word baptism is changed to washings. Now, ten years later, the Apostle Paul is saved. He's baptized. Was he baptized as a Christian? 
No, he wasn't. He was baptized as a believer in Christ in relation to the gospel of the kingdom, but he was not a believer in a Christian message because the Christian message will be given to him after he is made an apostle to the Gentiles by the risen Christ. Then what kind of baptism was he baptized with? Let's turn over to Acts chapter 22. Now this actually took place in Acts chapter 10, of course, and Acts chapter 9. But in Acts chapter 22, you have an addition to the historical account of Paul's conversion. And in Acts chapter 22, it says in verse 12, we find that after Paul was blinded, he was visited by a man, Ananias. And it says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him, and he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized. And will you tell me what the rest of it is? You ever hear a Baptist or a Plymouth brother or a Presbyterian or an Episcopalian? Say this to any of their converts whom they baptize? Never. And wash away thy sins. Wouldn't it be ridiculous for pre preachers to say that today? Rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. There's no sins to be washed away by water. But there was a short period of time, and that is during the whole book of Acts, from the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ to the close of the book of Acts, when the test of water baptism and repentance was given to those Jews who claim to have accepted Christ as their Messiah and coming King. Water baptism was necessary. Now Peter is talking at, at the same time, maybe some 20 or 30 years later, when he writes to these people in 1 Peter chapter 3, and he says in verse 21, the like figure whereunto even baptism also doth now save us. Now who are the us? Is it the members of the body of Christ? Baptism doesn't say. Oh, I know there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can talk about that some other time. But we're talking about water because water is in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is not the Holy Spirit's baptism. There's water here. And water was used for a number of years, probably for about 30 or 35 years, as the test by which these professing believers would be approved of God and by which they would receive the remission of sins. It would show the reality of their conviction because they were told by Peter in Acts chapter 2 that they took the Lord Jesus Christ and by wicked hands have crucified him and now they are pricking their hearts. Their consciences are disturbing them and they say with a conscience stricken uh, message or question to the apostle uh, Peter, uh, sirs, what must we do? And uh, they are told to repent and be baptized. They had to be water baptized. Water belongs to the nation of Israel. And for this reason we find there is a period of time when it was possible for it to have been said, wherein water doth now save us, or baptism doth now save us. Baptism will not save you today. You have to be baptized into the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection. But that's the Holy Spirit's baptism. That's the baptism of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and explained 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
Whereas since for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Greeks. And that baptism is explained beautifully in Romans chapter 6. There's no water in Romans chapter 6. And if you want to know, have an understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how come you can be saved and saved for eternity by your identification with the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit's baptism of you into his person, into his death, his burial, his resurrection, so that you can see his death as a death that you died in him, as his burial, a burial in which you took part in him, and as a resurrection in which you took part in his resurrection. Therefore, we find that God puts to your account and to my account a death and burial and resurrection, which we ourselves did not personally experience, but it was experienced by us through a substitute, Christ dying for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this morning. If you want to know how to be saved, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Take your place as the sinner for whom Christ died on Calvary's cross, and you will be saved for time and eternity. May the Lord bless his word. It is the cult of Christendom. You can almost expect anything to be advocated in Christendom. We have the liberals, we have the fundamentalists, and we have the cults who even deny the Lord that bought them. And therefore, I want to say a little bit more about this thing in which they are all agreed, and that is water baptism. And I want to explain a little bit more about the baptism that is suggested in the flood. 1 Peter chapter 3 at verse 21 says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've got two books here, and you've heard what I said about that uh, message this morning. And I want you to know what the fundamentalists say about it, because these two writers are fundamental brethren. They're both probably with Christ today. I'm not too sure about the one, but I believe they're both with the Lord, and I won't tell you their names. But they're widely known, and they're very deeply respected. They are brothers of ours in Christ, and we are not ridiculing them or anything, but we do know there's a vast difference between rightly dividing the word of truth and what the traditionalists have to say. We know that most uh, fundamentalists are what we call Schofield uh, traditionalists or Schofield dispensationalists rather, and they go no farther than what Schofield went. But I do believe, like I said a week or two ago, that if Schofield lived to see our day, I believe he would have made changes in the Schofield Bible and brought it more up to date because more things were found after about 17 centuries of darkness through which Christendom passed through in those 17 centuries since the Apostle Paul himself was rejected in his message when he could write and say to Timothy, All they that are in Asia have forsaken me. And so we know that when they forsook him, they forsook the message of Paul as well. Now we want to get back to Paul and we want to respect Paul for what he is as, as God's appointed apostle of the Gentiles. Now here one of these writers in looking over this scripture about baptism now saving us, they all forget that the us is not uh, us in the body of Christ today, but the us of the people of Israel. Peter is speaking in behalf of these Hebrews. And if you always remember the addressee of these letters, you'll have 
no mistake as to whom the Apostle Peter is trying to address himself. But this is what he says. And just as those who enter the ark pass through the flood of judgment to a new earth, so in baptism the obedient believer is saved in symbol. Now the obedient believer there is you and I and all the members of the body of Christ. He doesn't know what it is ever to refer to the Jews. And that's, the, uh, that's what traditionalism has done. It has wiped out the idea that God has a word for the Jews. And they simply take everything as though it's written to the church, the body of Christ. When we know that the only one who wrote to the church, the body of Christ, is the Apostle Paul and not the Apostle Peter. I'll read it again. And just as those who enter the ark pass through the flood of judgment to a new earth, so in baptism the obedient believer is saved in symbol. It is not the going into the water that saves, but that of which baptism speaks, and which a good conscience demands, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, as far as he is concerned, if you were to go to the average person today and ask them why they were baptized, or ask them to ask the preacher why the preacher expects them to be baptized, you will see that they generally take words from 1 Peter chapter 3, and it says that baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. But the bad conscience is not the conscience of Gentiles in this dispensation of grace, but the bad conscience is the conscience of Jews who, with wicked hands, took the Lord Jesus Christ and crucified him. And so the first job that uh, God had for the Apostle Peter to do was to prick the consciences of these men, bring about the sense of guilt, and cause them to say, what must we do? And then, of course, the answer was, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will receive the forgiveness of sins and uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we find that uh, in, in this particular book, we are again told that salvation is accomplished. Now we remember that it says the like figure whereunto even baptism also doth uh, also now save us. And we find that it definitely says that baptism saves those people who submitted to the rite of baptism. They were saved by virtue of that baptism. But here we find that they change it, this particular writer changes it to make you to believe that they, the baptism does save, but it saves in symbols, so that you don't have to get it mixed up in your mind that he is advocating baptismal regeneration. But Peter is talking about baptismal regeneration, don't forget that. But this writer doesn't believe in baptismal regeneration, but he believes that this letter has been written for the benefit of the church, and therefore believers today, when they are baptized, are being saved in symbol by the waters of baptism. And then when we get into this writer, he is also of the same cloth, we might say, and he says water baptism is his visible testimony to his faith, and the salvation which he was given in answer to that faith. Now, in other words, he is plainly stating that first comes faith and then salvation and then baptism. He's got it all wrong because the apostle Peter is talking about his message to the Jews which said, repent and be baptized and then they will receive forgiveness of sins or the remission of sins. So they didn't receive remission of sins before their baptism they received it by virtue, or by virtue of uh, uh, their baptism, not before their baptism. Now, the only one who received salvation before baptism was Cornelius, 
because Cornelius was a Gentile and all of Paul's converts were saved before they were baptized. But Peter is talking about a baptism that saves. And the only baptismal regeneration that we find in the word of God took place during the book of Acts and only among Jews. They were the only ones who were required to follow their supposed repentance by baptism because that would really show how real uh, they were and how real the conviction was and how real the pricking of their hearts were and we find that uh, they were the ones who would be baptized. Now he goes on and says Peter is careful to inform his readers that he is not teaching baptismal regeneration and it's just exactly the opposite. Peter is very clear about the fact that he is teaching baptismal regeneration. But if you are going to make you and me the, the recipients of this particular message in Peter, then we'll do all we possibly can to say that if Peter is not talking about baptismal regeneration. In, fact, in other words, we have to change practically what the Lord Jesus Christ says or what the Apostle Peter says by divine inspiration. If we want to believe what is generally taught today in Christendom, which has been accepted traditionally by hundreds of thousands of believers in Christ, and that is that baptism follows the acceptance of salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me read it to you again. This is a comment on the 21st verse of uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter is careful to inform his readers that he is not teaching baptismal regeneration. Can you go along with that having read the 21st verse? And the verses preceding that in 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm sure you can't go along with that because he is preaching the fact that there was a period of time when water was, had to be used in order that the remission of sins might be uh, given or, or accepted by these particular people. And then he says, namely, that a person who submits to baptism is thereby regenerated, for he says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Well, not the, way, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh is not a testimony to the fact that the man is not regenerated by baptism. He is regenerated by baptism. The scripture plainly teaches in that verse that they were saved by baptism. And therefore, this writer has to go on and he wants to be like a traditionalist and make this... Uh, the recipients of this letter to be members of the body of Christ, he just has to have the audacity to change the scriptures around and tell us what Peter did mean to say when it's exactly what Peter is saying. Baptism, he says, Peter explains, does not wash away the filth of the flesh either in a literal sense as a bath for the body nor in a metaphorical sense as a cleansing for the soul. And yet the scripture so shows that that baptism was a cleansing for the soul because the apostle Paul was told, Rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. So you see where they have to change things around. No ceremonies really affect the conscience. This ceremony did affect the conscience. No ceremony affects our conscience, but the ceremony that they practiced in that day affected the conscience of the Jews that was pricked by Peter's saying, ye have by wicked hands have taken him and crucified and slain. So he says no ceremonies really affect the conscience, but he defines what he means by salvation in the words, the answer of a good conscience toward God. And he explains how this is accomplished, namely by the resurrection of Jesus Christ in that the believing sinner is identified with him in that resurrection. 
Now he's trying to bring in Pauline teaching there. But Pauline teaching does not fit in 1 Peter chapter uh, 3 or in any of those chapters of 1 Peter because it's written by the apostle of the circumcision and it's written <coughs> to the circumcision. And it does not pay to try to squeeze in some Pauline doctrine in there. And so that's what we call rightly dividing the word of truth and we have to stay with it. Now, if we ignore the rule for Bible study as given in 1 Timothy, or is it 2 Timothy 2.15, you will probably identify with, the, with these particular writers uh, whom I have quoted and read from their books. Now, if you put the church where it does not belong, you have to change scriptures around a bit, and we have seen that done so often. How many times haven't you gone to a church where you swear that the scriptures have been changed in order to make it Paulinish? rather than Petrine, because Peter is the writer and not the Apostle Paul. And you can't make Peter sound like Paul, and you should never make Paul sound like Peter. They both had their own people to whom they were to write and to exhort and to encourage in the Scriptures. Now, this is done by one writer, that is, he changes Scriptures around. He is, this is done by one writer when he says that we are saved by baptism in symbol. That's this writer, when he says we are saved by baptism in symbol. The word does not say so anywhere in the inspired book. Now, this is also done by the other writer when he says that Peter is not teaching baptismal regeneration, when baptismal regeneration is the subject of 1 Peter chapter 3. This is also done by Christendom at large when it changes the words of Peter in Acts 2.38, where it says, Repent and be baptized, and you receive the remission of sins. And they say, Repent, and you ought to be baptized and you'll receive the remission of sins. As though it's up to you to be baptized, and baptism is not a required condition for receiving the forgiveness of sins. And so all of these scriptures are very often changed by the best of preachers, and all of those who advocate traditional teaching change the word of God in that particular way. Now what is the reason we ask for water baptism? Now, different answers are given according to denominational preferences. You go to the Baptist, and there are 52 divisions according to last night's paper of Baptist denominations, and you might get 52 answers. You go to the Methodist, and you've got different Methodists. You've got the United Methodists and other Methodists. You go to the Presbyterians, and you've got different Presbyterians. You've got all kinds of Episcopalians. You've got the Roman Catholics. You have all of the cults, and they all practice baptism in one way, shape, or form. Now, if you want an answer to that question, you go to a denomination and you will get the denominational answer. You never get a scriptural answer because we don't find a scriptural answer for the pra practice of baptism today. Now, where scripture is used, it is wrested from the context, such as our text in verse 21, where it tells us that it is an answer of a good conscience toward God. Because, again, you have to forget the people to whom this epistle is being addressed, and you have to just simply apply it to the church, and it's not the church's conscience or members of the body of Christ's conscience, but it's the conscience of these Jews who by wicked hands have taken the Lord Jesus Christ and killed. Now, you have to disregard whose conscience is being spoken of if you want to give that as an answer for baptism. Baptism was plainly a washing from the sense of guilt for the nation of Israel. And it's always been that, and it's to Israel only. The only reason why 
the Apostle Paul made a concession to Israel as it were and had his converts baptized or permitted those convict, uh, convicts, uh, converts to be baptized was in order to make a concession with the nation of Israel because God's primary pers uh, purpose was to accomplish the preaching of an amnesty to the people who had taken the Lord of life and glory and had crucified. And then if they would accept the resurrection of Christ from the dead and take their guilt and confess that thing in the which they have sinned, according to Leviticus chapter 5, God would have sent his son to be the king of Israel in due process of time. And instead of having a dispensation of grace, we would have had the millennial reign already finished by this time. Now, baptism along with partial dietary laws, now get this, along with dietary laws, along with the circumcision of, of Timothy by the apostle uh, Paul in, uh, uh, in the book of Acts chapter 16, plus the gifts of the Spirit that are enumerated in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, they were all imposed upon the church during the Acts period. And that's the only time when these four things were practiced and uh, the only time when the gifts of the Holy Spirit were manifested in such a way as described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now after the Acts period, Paul received a fuller revelation of the mystery of this dispensation of grace in which mystery we find revealed the positions and the possessions of every member of the body of Christ and they vastly different than any position or possession that the Apostle Peter offers to the converts of the nation of Israel. Ours is vastly different. We have been called to a heavenly calling while the people of Israel through the Apostle Peter were called to an earthly calling. They were called to a heavenly kingdom which we often call the kingdom of heaven or the millennial reign of Christ. We are called to an eternal kingdom in heaven. We have been uh, separated from the kingdom of uh, Satan and uh, saved unto the kingdom of his dear son. And there is a kingdom involved, but we must remember there are many kingdoms presented in the Bible, and we must be not be confused as to those kingdoms. Now these uh, revealed the end of ordinances, that is, these revelations of the Apostle Paul concerning the mystery of this dispensation with its positions and possessions for the enjoyment of every member of the body of Christ revealed the end of ordinances opposed upon them as they now enjoyed the spiritual significance of these very things, the reality of them. If we were to go to Colossians chapter 2, we will find circumcision, we will find baptism, and then a very strong word in chapter 2 concerning the practice of uh, these ordinances. In Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, we have two of these Old Testament uh, ordinances, circumcision and baptism, and we find that one is by the operation of man's hands and the other is the operation of God. That is, as far as the baptism is concerned, we find the circumcision was by man's hands back in Old Testament times, but we all, as members of the body of Christ, are both uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit and we are both, and we are also circumcised but in a spiritual manner and not by man's effort upon man and man's hands have nothing to do with it. Now look at verse 11. 
in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And that's a wonderful truth. That's very clear and plain. Each one of us, we know what it is, uh, having been saved by the grace of God and through the death of Christ on the cross, we have experienced a spiritual circumcision in which the flesh is cut away so that there is absolutely no justification for any action in the flesh because the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary the one with, uh, against the other. And then when you get into verse 12, or let's see, I didn't finish verse 11. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now the circumcision of Christ is his death on the cross of Calvary. That's the circumcision that's applicable to each one of us. I think it's in the book of Philippians, is it chapter 4, where we are addressed? Uh, chapter 3, I want you to look at that in verse uh, 1. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3 at verse 1, it says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. The concision are those who would cut the flesh but have nothing to do with the spiritual life of the individual. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So that according to Colossians chapter uh, 2 and verse 11, this is without hands. It is a spiritual circumcision and its effect has come to us by way of the cross through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what about baptism? In verse 12 it says, buried with him in baptism. Now when the Baptists read that, they say that proves you that baptism is by immersion. And that doesn't prove anything because water baptism is not in this at all. Romans chapter 6 does not prove that baptism must be by immersion. Because you will find that there are more sprinklings in the Old Testament times then there are immersions. I failed to find a single place where an immersion could have taken place in the field of baptism. And yet most of us would be inclined to be baptized by immersion rather than by sprinkling. I've had both imposed upon me and now I wish I could eradicate both because I believe that they are both absolutely useless. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are raised with him through the faith of the operation of God. Thank God for a spiritual baptism. It's the operation of God that counts and not the operation of man. When man baptizes man, nothing is accomplished. But when God the Father baptizes a believer, he is baptized into Christ. And we are henceforth identified with the Lord Jesus Christ in all the victories that he has gained for us by his death on the cross. Now when you go to verse 20 of the same chapter, Colossians 2 and 20, it says... Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ, now there's two ways in which we died with him. We died with him by way of spiritual circumcision of verse 11. We died with him by way of spiritual baptism of verse 12. Now we come to the conclusion that we died with Christ. And here it says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Will you tell me why people want to be subject to ordinances? There are many ordinances of Judaism that has been adopted by believers, by Christians, by professing believers in the world today, in Christendom. But not one of them need to be adopted by us because they belong to the people of Israel. 
we have a reality in the spiritual benefits of Christ's death on the cross and we don't need any more types as far as that's concerned. Now, here's another thing. God could trust the 12 apostles of the circumcision. He could trust the 8 apostles of the body of Christ. But since there is no apostolic succession, may I ask a question? Who can be trusted with a divinely accepted baptism? Now you can't trust me, I'm not an apostle, and yet I could represent this church and take people off to the water, and yet when he comes into another neighborhood and he goes to somebody's church, a Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran, they want to do it all over again. They didn't trust me, I wouldn't trust them, and there's baptism after baptism after baptism. It only shows you that we are not officially designated by God to baptize a single soul. And this has brought an awful lot of uh, uh, disagreement, of course, in Christendom today, which disagreement we set aside at certain times in order to get along well together. But we know all of that confusion and disagreement is there. We have fundamentalists who would rebaptize each other's converts. I know that you could be a member of one of the 52 members of the Baptist Church and you can go into another Baptist church and they will not accept the baptism of this Baptist church. Now that's within one denomination. Now if that isn't confusion, I don't know what is. They don't trust each other to properly baptize. And I'm only using that as an example because all the rest of the denominations can be at fault with this as well. Only I have had to do with the Baptists more than any other group in my life. And I know that's ha that takes place. We have liberal preachers. We have covenant preachers such as the Reformed out of which by God's grace I was saved. We have cultists like Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian Science and the Mormons. They all believe in baptism. They all practice it. Imagine the Mormons' baptism asking people to be baptized for dead members who have died over the years to make sure that they get into heaven by virtue of your die, uh, being baptized as proxy for these dead people. My, there's a lot of excuses and reasons and false views that uh, there is on baptism. Baptism does not unify unless it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5. We have seven particular unities of the Spirit there and they all consist of one this and one that and one the other. And in verse 5 it says one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Who is there in the world today who can uh, do that baptism or practice that baptism? I know that there is the author of this book, he says that one baptism is water baptism. And I know that that will be the answer given you by the average person today who practices immersionist. If he is a fundamentalist, he will say that that one baptism is water baptism, but it's linked up with the Holy Spirit, so that it is equal to the Holy Spirit's baptism. We have sprinkling, we have immersion, we have baptism forward, we have baptism backward, etc., etc., etc. And you can go on to no end as to how they are practiced, as to all of the reasons for the practicing, and all of the kinds of people who will do the practicing. You will have men who are disqualified to act as a preacher. You will have the emissaries of Satan, those who pose to be preachers of righteousness, which are nothing else but the dupes of Satan, and they also are baptizing. So are you going to take the word of any particular person that they have been baptized and say he's a believer? 
And yet we are told that if a person comes into our door and says, I am a baptized believer, we are to take his word for it. And if we believe in water baptism and practice it, we should welcome him with open arms because he said he was baptized. And if you say, well, who, uh, who baptized him? By what particular group? What about the uh, qualification of the man that performed it? You would say, well, that's none of your business. You should not question uh, what this man really says as truth from his own heart. You can't judge anybody. My, I never saw a worse condition in all my life, and things are getting worse. You can uh, count on that. What do we learn about the flood in Noah's day? We learned that it was a baptism. There's no doubt about it. But we find, however, that those who were safe in the ark were dry. They were not wet. Now this is a baptism. But not one person that was saved in all the eight that went in the ark ever touched water. But there was a baptism there. And that baptism was the baptism of the ark. And the ark was a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one door is the one entrance into God, as it were. Because the scripture says that God says, Come down all thy house into the ark. Now he didn't stand outside and go and say go. He came into the, insta in the ark. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. You remember that scripture in 2 Corinthians 5. He enters, as it were, into the death of Christ and says, calling to us from the inside of the person of Christ, come thou in all thy house into the ark. Christ is the ark. And God accepted it and pronounced it to be perfectly safe for himself. And therefore he was in a position to properly invite people to come into the ark. It was God that shut the door of the ark. Noah didn't shut the door even. Which means that you had eternal security divinely provided by the shutting of the door by God himself. Now they did pass through a baptism of wrath in the ark. The ark passed through a baptism of wrath. And, and they, the eight dry ones in the ark, and this was a beautiful type of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of the Psalms, there is a verse of scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, pre-incarnately uttered as he anticipated the cross, and he says, all thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. That would suggest a baptism. That would suggest the the complete immersion, we might say, if there's immersion anywhere in the Bible, I like to think of that Christ was immersed in the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary, that he was thoroughly covered by God's answer to man's sin and to man's sins. And that happened at the cross of Calvary. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is baptized in the baptism of divine wrath against sin. And that's what is meant when he says, all thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. It was a baptism of judgment, a baptism of God's wrath against sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ sustained it all, and it all broke upon him. And he is the one that suffered the just for us, the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now God who foreknew all those who would be saved, or foresaw them from a past eternity, he foresaw all those that would volitionally accept Christ he also foresaw them as being in Christ before the foundation of the world in the same sense in which he saw Christ as the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. If God, according to his foreknowledge, could see Christ slain all the way back from before the foundation of the world, although it took uh, place 2,000 years ago, we find that God, because of his foreknowledge, 
and his infinite knowledge of all things, we find that he was able to see all of those who would eventually and ultimately and volitionally accept Christ as personal Savior. And there, as he saw his son to be the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, he saw us included in the killing of the Lord Jesus Christ so that his death would be our death as though we had accomplished it for ourselves. Just as these four were in the ark before the judgments ever fell, it is a beautiful picture of the fact that God foresaw us as having died with Christ in the cross of Calvary. And that's not too difficult for us to believe. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6, please. Now in Romans chapter 6, we have a baptism brought before us too. But that is not water baptism. Here we are told that this chapter tells us that people are to be immersed. And that is not the subject of the 6th chapter of the book of Romans at all. I would like to read down to verse 11. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we uh, continue in sin that grace may abound? That's a hypothetical question, of course. People may have raised that question and say, what? Then it's a good idea. If grace is going to abound because of my sin, I can continue to sin because that would permit the grace of God to show itself. But he says, God forbid, or far be the thought. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, how did they die to sin? The same way that you and I die to sin. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? You see, when he died, he also represented all of those whom God foreknew to have accepted Christ. It is not selection, but it's predestined, and not predestination. It is not selection, but it is simply a matter of foreknowledge. And that's a great big difference. God does not select those who are going to be saved. But when an individual makes a choice on his own to receive Christ as Savior, without any more influence than the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, which is free to all men upon the face of the earth, then God sees that man as being saved by virtue of Christ's death on the cross, and then he pronounces that person as to have died with Christ in the cross, so that now there is no reason anymore for that person to live on and continue in sin. All right, now let's look at verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So there you have death, you have burial, you have resurrection. All three acts of our Lord Jesus Christ were acted on our behalf, and God sees us as having gone through these particular death, burial, and resurrection uh, for ourselves. For if he had been planted together in the likeness of his death, and that's what happened when Christ died on the cross. We were with him in that death. Now I know that Christ died alone. No one else could die with him or for him. He died alone. But in the foreknowledge of God, he linked up every believer in Christ with him so that when he passed through death, burial, and resurrection, it can now be said of us who are saved by the grace of God that we too in Christ have died, have been buried, have been raised again. And this puts us where we belong, in the heavenlies, where we've been raised together and seated together with Christ. Verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Now isn't that clear and plain? 
Our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That word reckon is a faith word. It doesn't seem to be reasonable that we should say that we died with Christ. It's the thing that we believe because God said it, and that's enough for us. And we thank God for it. So God foresaw us in our acceptance of Christ as Savior and by the baptism of the Holy Spirit we are united together into one body whether we be Jews or Gentiles and therefore that baptism back in the Old Testament time is not a baptism that symbolizes even the water baptism of the Jews and therefore you don't say that that baptism is a symbol of their baptism but it's the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ that saved the four dry, never having touched water. And therefore, I paraphrased my particular scripture in 1 Peter chapter uh, 3 this morning in this way, and I'll read it to you again. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Uh, verse 21, the flood baptism. Now remember, this is Peter talking in a paraphrase. The flood baptism, which is a baptism, but not a baptism of the individuals, but a baptism of Christ, and they were in the ark at the time, so they remained dry, they had nothing to do with any water baptism, but the water baptism was a type of the wrath of God that was uh, placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ that he was exposed to and which he took in, our, in their behalf. The flood baptism reminds us of another water baptism, the one required of us Jews without which you could not be saved and by which baptism you give an answer of a good conscience toward God. Now that's the meaning of verse 21. That's the whole setup on that particular chapter. Now I'm quitting right now. I've had a lot to do this afternoon. Oh, I became a new great-grandfather today. Susan got a, had a baby born this week. And I got that news, huh? yesterday and then uh, Junior called up and Anita called up so I talked to my three kids on the telephone and that took some time and had a real happy day having nice company with us too with the Beaumonts and I didn't have very much time for study but I did want to elaborate a little bit more fully on the subject that we had this morning we thank God that there was a baptism that did save for a short period of time perhaps 30 or 35 years it was only to reach a certain group of people who had taken the Lord of life and glory and by wicked hands have killed him. God wanted to prick their conscience. He wanted to stir them up. He wanted to, them to see their guilt and to confess the one thing that they did wrongfully against the government of God. And for this reason, an amnesty was declared to them. But not very many people accepted that amnesty. And we find that those that did repented and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they received the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost. And wasn't that a wonderful thing? But only for a short period of time, not a Gentile involved in that baptism. 
So let's straighten things out. If we don't rightly divide the word of God, we can be just like these dear brethren in Christ. If they're both in heaven, I think they've learned their lesson by this time. I think maybe they've gone through a little bit of university teaching. They're the highest form of university and Bible teaching they'll ever get. And there are many men who have passed off this scene and who have helped to confound the people by their type of teaching. And you know there's got to be a lot of different types with all the denominations we've got in Christendom today. But I don't think it's going to take them too long when they get into glory to see the mistakes that they might have made. Well, we thank God that they were saved by the grace of God. And we're going to see them someday and they're going to be just like us. We'll have glorified bodies together. We'll endlessly praise our Lord Jesus Christ for his matchless grace. May the Lord bless his word to us today for his name's sake.